Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, I Am Jonah. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. We're continuing our series uh, in the book of Jonah today called, I Am Jonah. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Jonah chapter 2 and pull out the sermon notes that are in your worship folder. If you forgot your uh, Bible, just raise your hand and we can loan you one of ours. Uh, We want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you so you can follow along. As you turn there, allow me to review a few uh, important backstory points uh, on Jonah from last week, just in case you weren't here. Uh, Jonah served as a prophet for the Lord under King Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom of Israel from 793 to 753 BC. The book of Jonah is different than any other prophetic book in that it describes one of God's prophets being dispatched to a foreign nation to preach instead of to Israel. He's also the only prophet on record that tries to run from God. The rest of the Lord's prophets obeyed when given their various assignments. And if you look at your Bible in Jonah, if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, and then glance at uh, the very end of the book, uh, Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, uh, you'll notice that the Lord has the first words in the book and the very last words as well. Uh, making him, or at least re-emphasizing the fact that he is the star of the story. It's, it's not the fish, it's not Jonah, but it's the Lord. This too is distinct from other books in the Bible. The Lord having the first word and the last word. The key verse in Jonah uh, reveals how the Lord wants us to feel about him. And I mentioned last week that it is Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, if, we, if we can't make this verse the cry of our heart, the Lord will firmly but lovingly get us to a point where we can make it the cry of our heart. Uh, I want to encourage you to say it out loud with me from the NIV translation on the screen here. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. The book of Jonah shows us that obedience brings blessings, but disobedience brings discipline. More than that, though, I hope that you will see yourself in Jonah. Like the prophet, we are fickle, fumbling, foolish, and fearful, born with a propensity to run from the God who loves us like no one else. On the other hand, we can learn a lot about the Lord and how he interacts with his people by looking at how he handles Jonah in Jonah's rebellion as well. And that will give us some insights into how he will deal with us. There are three major themes in the book of Jonah that I wanted to uh, highlight for you today. Uh, These are on your outline. I want to encourage you to write them down. Three major theological themes that stand out. Theology is simply what we think about God. We can learn how to accurately think about God by studying the scriptures and observing how the Lord behaves and interacts with his people. And so uh, here's the first 
major theme that stands out in the book of Jonah, and that is the Lord's deep burden for lost people. The Lord has a deep burden for lost people. Just as he wanted to see the barbaric Assyrians repent and be redeemed, so the gospel message is for all people. You might remember last week how I mentioned the Assyrians that God had dispatched Jonah to go preach to were uh, sworn enemies of Israel. They were ruthless people that had committed various war crimes and sins against people of Israel. And so one of the reasons Jonah didn't want to go preach to them is that he didn't want them to be repentant and redeemed. He wanted them to suffer God's wrath and judgment. Well, even those that we don't like or even those that hurt us are, well, not worthy of the gospel message, but I should say uh, need to hear the gospel message. So like Jonah, we don't get to select who we witness to. Well, I don't like him. I kind of want him to go somewhere else after he dies. So the gospel is for all peoples in this world, whether we like them or not, whether they hurt us or didn't hurt us. We also see the Lord go to such great lengths to get the message of salvation to unbelievers that no one can seriously question God's love for them. The Lord is so committed to getting his message out there of redemption through Jesus Christ that he's willing to make believers uncomfortable in order to help unbelievers come to faith in Christ. So the Lord is a deep burden for lost people. Here's the second major theme that uh, stands out in the book of Jonah, and that is the Lord's limited patience toward our rebellion. He has a limited patience towards our rebellion. I was recently remembering what it was like to train our family, family's dog how to walk on a leash. Um, here's a picture of the baby of our family. His name is Rigby. And if you've been to our home, you've been greeted by him. It's the highlight of his day when friends from church come by and visit. Um, he's a three-year-old now. This is when he was just born. He was just a few months old. But uh, he's a three-year-old multi-poo named Rigby. We got him when he was just a few weeks old. Now, now, please don't be deceived, however, by the adorable puppy look that this little fella has. Don't, don't be deceived by you know, the fact that he has a group of ladies in our house that, well, I don't want to call them a harem, but he, he is a, he's a womanizer in our home, okay? He, he's adored by women and um, always is able to command attention. But don't be deceived by how harmless and cuddly he looks. And here's why. Because he would turn into an evil monster when he was taken on walks as a puppy. He would snarl and snap and, and try to bite his leash or try to bite my hand or the, Maya's hand or the kid's hands. And Well, why? Because his will was colliding with the will of his master's. He hated how his leash restrained him from exploring further in the neighborhood. And he hated how it protected him from dangers that he couldn't see or understand. It took a while for walks to become enjoyable with Rigby. I remember thinking at one point, my goodness, is he ever going to get better at this? It just seemed like it was going on for weeks. 
Is he ever going to learn how to submit to our leadership? Well, thankfully, he did eventually. But still, when we walk him today, even though he's much more compliant, um, he still will wander off the sidewalk into yards further than he should, and we will have to gently tug on the leash to get him back on the right path. Well, so it is with Jonah, and so it is with us. Jonah was like an untrained puppy, and so can we be. We snarl and snap and try to bite the Lord's restraining, protective hand until we eventually learn to submit to our master. Finally, the third major theme in the book of Jonah is the Lord's sovereign control to achieve his will. His ability to exercise his sovereign control to achieve his will. Like a master chess player, the Lord is able to orchestrate events so that his plans are accomplished. Jonah's story reminds us of that. God said, I want you to go here, and I want you to do this. Jonah said, no thanks. And God said, oh yeah, well, you're going to go there. Jonah's story reminds us that God doesn't need us to accomplish his plans. Instead, we get to join him in his work, here on earth, and because he doesn't want us to miss out on that amazing privilege, he will interrupt our plans to get us on his plan. Now, uh, last week we saw how the prophet received a clear directive from the Lord. Go to the Assyrian city of Nineveh and preach to them. But Jonah refused. Instead of going 550 miles to the east, Jonah said, no thanks, I will go 2,500 miles to the west. To Joppa. So let's look at how the Lord responded to Jonah's refusal to obey. In chapter 1, verse 17 is where we left off. It says, uh, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, let me stop right there and say, over, this, over the years, over many years, there have been critics and cynics that have tried to discredit the authenticity of the Bible and even the book of Jonah by saying, you know, there's just no possible way for a guy to be swallowed up by fish, spit back up out, and live to tell about it. That just can't happen. And that's how they always talk, by the way. Well, even if I were to, say, set aside, the, for the sake of argument, the working of a miraculous God who can raise the dead... Let me use logic here to show that it is plausible for this to happen. Um, I'd like you to consider, if you are one of those cynics that talks like that, <laughs> or critics, uh, to consider this true story. In 1891, off the coast of the Falkland Islands, two fishing boats went out whale hunting. On that day, they came upon a sperm whale. One boat shot harpoons into the whale, while the second boat circled around the reel of the whale and got hit by its tail and capsized. One fisherman drowned, a second one disappeared, and the whale got away. That's when a different group, though, a couple days later, a different group of fishermen found the same sperm whale again. They killed him and they brought him ashore. As they were cleaning this fresh catch on the beach, they slid open its stomach 
and out came the missing fisherman from two days before. He was unconscious, but still alive, and after some medical care, resumed a normal life. Now, this great fish mentioned here uh, in chapter 1, verse 17, was most likely a sperm whale. Sperm whales are known for swallowing unusually large objects. In fact, they have uh, often, it's been found many times, they have swallowed 15-foot-long sharks. have been discovered in the stomachs of sperm whales. Other scholars and biologists have written about whale sharks that have swallowed men that were later found to be alive in their stomachs. So, it's plausible, logically, and historically, and then, of course, we know God can work supernaturally to preserve Jonah's life and inside the belly of the whale. Now, Jonah chapter 2 documents the prayer that Jonah said to the Lord while inside the great fish. Jonah chapter 2 is important for us individually and corporately as a church because if we want to see God use us like he did Jonah in chapter 3, then we will have to make a habit of doing what Jonah did in chapter 2. And so with that, our big idea for today is this. The Lord will repair you if you admit you're broken. The Lord will repair you if you admit you're broken. Jonah chapter 2 shows us that your life does not have to be over if you fail or rebel against the Lord. No one is beyond the Lord's reach, and anyone can begin again by returning to the Lord. The Bible is replete with stories of redemption. So please follow along with me in Jonah chapter 2 as I read the first couple of verses. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Here's point number one on your outline. The first truth that this tells us about the Lord is that the Lord waits for us to call on him. He waits for us to call on him. I called out to the Lord in my distress. Now, although calling out to the Lord when we've hit rock bottom may seem like common sense to some of you, there are others that struggle with this. So why don't we call out to him sooner? Well, I've observed at least two common causes for this. The first would be pride. Some people are so proud that even when they are clearly wrong, they are unable to see that their current circumstances are consequences they've reaped because of their sin. Some people can be put on their back by the Lord with his restraining hand on their, on their chest as they're going like this. And they can still be thinking, you know, I'm smart enough and strong enough to get out of this. Some people are so proud that the gastric juices inside of the whale can be ruining their face. And they can go, yeah, I can still work. I can still find a way out of this. I have two ways out. <laughs> they're, they're optimistically proud. <laughs> I could go one way or the other way. Here's another 
common reason that I see why people don't call out to the Lord when they're in distress and they've been laid out by him is shame. Some people are too proud. Some people are too ashamed. They're so ashamed of their sin that they don't believe the Lord could ever forgive them. Of course, that's a lie from the enemy. Um, Psalm 103, for example, tells us that uh, the Lord's love is as high as the heavens are above the earth and as far as the east is from the west for those that fear him. He does want to forgive those who repent and return to him. Notice in verse 2, Jonah says, And he answered me. I cried out to the Lord. I got an answer. And you heard my voice. Here's why all of us need to treat our sin with urgency. The scriptures teach that if there is unrepentant sin between us and the Lord, the only prayer that he will hear from us is the prayer of repentance first. Psalm 66, 18 is a cross-reference you might want to jot down. You can look up later. In Psalm 66, 18, it says that if I had cherished sin in my heart, meaning I still love my sin, then the Lord would not have listened to me. So I I often like to say, uh, sin clogs the plumbing between us and God. When we repent, it's just like Drano or liquid plumber. It cleans everything out so the Lord can hear us and things are flowing again. The prayers are working. But when we haven't repented, it'll be like our prayers are bouncing off heaven. So here's an application for you for these first two verses. Reach out to the Lord for help. If he's working in your life, if he's laid you out and laid you low, reach out to him for help. If you've been running from the Lord, if the Holy Spirit's been convicting you about a sin struggle that you have, then I want to urge you to stop running today. He wants to help you. Stop trying to make it on your own, do it on your own. He loves you. He wants to bless you. However, your prayers will bounce off heaven until you do business with him, until you reconcile with him. In some cases, that might mean beginning a relationship with Jesus Christ through repentance and faith in him. In others, it might mean restoring your relationship with Jesus after a season of rebellion. And in others, it might mean humbling yourself enough to receive help from God's people, to admit, you know, I'm struggling, I need help, and to allow God to work through his people, which he often does. If you need help in any way, I'd be, I'm available after the service, and anybody that has one of these name badges can talk to you and pray with you as well. So the Lord, he will repair you if you admit you're broken. Now look at verse 3 with me. Next, uh, Jonah says in his prayer from the belly of the fish, for you cast me into the deep, into the part of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Here's number two in your outline. The Lord disciplines those he loves. He disciplines those he loves. A key word in verse three that I have underlined in my Bible is is you. For you cast me into the deep. Now, in chapter one, it says the sailors on that ship going to Joppa are the ones. But isn't it interesting that Jonah recognizes, although it was the sailors that threw him overboard, it was the Lord that caused them to do it. Even though the fish swallowed him, it was the Lord that sent the fish. 
Could it be that some of the trials and setbacks you've experienced recently are not man's doing, but the Lord trying to get your attention? On the other hand, some of you may be still stuck in the belly of your own fish because you're still blaming people for something that God is doing in your life. And I would urge you to consider that and to pray about that and ask the Lord. Now, the next four verses describe a topic in the scriptures that is not popular in American pulpits. That topic is the discipline of the Lord. The most popular passage on the Lord's discipline is Hebrews chapter 12. You can just jot that down in the margin of your notes and read it later, maybe during your devotions this week. But in Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews in essence says, the Lord disciplines those that he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And then the passage goes on to explain that the Lord's motive for this is always love and his purpose is to produce holiness in us. Now, I think there are two types of discipline that I've observed in the scriptures and in my own life, uh, two different types of discipline. First of all, discipline for growth, and then the other would be discipline as a consequence. Here's an example. Uh, An example of discipline for growth would be, say, getting laid off from your job when you were a very good employee. You did nothing wrong to deserve it. But the Lord allowed it or caused it because he wants to do something in your life. He sees an area in your life that he wants to, to work on and help grow you for what he has next. So it's not that you're being punished. It's not that... You rebelled. You were walking with the Lord, doing everything right. He just decided, now it's time for you to grow again, and I'm going to help you by taking you through a difficult season of unemployment. Now, if you were to then go knock off a bank uh, and then land in jail, that would be discipline as a consequence because of your sin. Therefore, I think it's important for us to understand about the Lord's discipline is that, I want you to get this, not all trials are the result of sin. And not all trials are the result of spiritual warfare. Sometimes it's the Lord doing it. Because again, he wants to help you grow. Look at verse 4 with me. Jonah says, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And then what comes in the next few verses are at least two strategies. These aren't the only ones, but two ways God works through discipline in our lives. So here's A on your outline. This would be 2A. The Lord uses isolation to restore intimacy. He will use isolation to restore intimacy. I am driven away. So Jonah, in essence, was put on timeout. He was removed from relational contact. He was removed, uh, and distance was put between him and the Lord because of his rebellion. Similar to the timeout that we would give our own children when they've disobeyed. This tool is designed to isolate us for a short period so that we feel distant from the Lord. However, I know what I've noticed in my own life is that during these seasons, the Lord is closer than ever before. 
He may feel like he's a long way away, but he's actually very close. Moses and David and other saints through the centuries have experienced this kind of discipline. One of the purposes of this isolation is to remove all the noise in our lives so that we can learn to hear again that still, small voice. So that we learn to crave that intimacy with the Lord that we forgot that we had or forgot that we need in the busyness and chaos of life. It could be isolation that restores intimacy. It could be a season of unemployment where the Lord just seemingly puts your life on hold, where just the brakes hit, it's like everything comes to a stop. It feels like the whole world's moving on without you, but you're just stuck. And every day you get up, and it's like Groundhog Day, it's the same thing over and over again. I'm just stuck. I'm stuck. Why can't I move forward? Why can't I gain any traction? It could be a lengthy waiting period. It could be laid, being laid up in the hospital with an illness for a a long period of time. It could be a time between marriages or a year in which you see very few answers to prayer. You're just isolated. It's all designed to make you crave the intimacy with the Lord as a first priority or to take you deeper in your intimacy with him. Look at chapter, excuse me, verses 5 to 7 now. Uh, Jonah says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down uh, to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Here's a second strategy of discipline that Jonah references, and that is dependence to crush independence. Dependence to crush independence. You'll notice in verse 5, he says, the waters closed in over me. Jonah's describing how he nearly drowned when he was uh, thrown overboard by the sailors in chapter 1. You know as well as I do, when you're drowning in the ocean in a storm, you can't rescue yourself. You have to be saved by someone else. Dependence that crushes independence happens when the Lord puts us in such an overwhelming situation or circumstances or such an overwhelming affliction that it absolutely takes you to the mat and you can't help yourself. You can't fix it. You can't change it. No matter how hard you try. It feels like you're drowning. But like a spanking from a loving father, this strategy is designed to make us so desperate that we cry out to him. That we cry out to the Lord and hopefully never want to be independent again. The people of Israel experience this many times. If you do a survey of the Old Testament and you look at it from a 30,000-foot view, you'll see they walk with the Lord for a while, then they rebel. And then they repent and go, Oh, God, we need you. Please help us. We're getting destroyed by our enemies. And then they, they walk with the Lord again, then they rebel. They go from, they go from dependence, which is, which is good. They're dependent and close to the Lord. And then they get independent, and that's the valley where they get crushed. 
and it happens over and over and over again, just like it does in our lives. When we're being disciplined, the Lord strips away everything else in our lives so that we have no other option but to run back to him. Some say, well, that's harsh that God would do that. Why, why would he do that? Well, it's not God's fault that he has to do it. It's our fault. <laughs> I find it interesting how prideful sinners will blame the Lord for discipline and sending trials to bring us to repentance and get us to come back to him. It's like, well, wait a minute. If you stand back and objectively read the scriptures, aren't we the ones that has the problem, not the Lord? <laughs> he, he, he shouldn't have to do that. We're the ones that got the problem. But at the end of the discipline period, most saints conclude in hindsight that the Lord is good and they're grateful for it. That's what the author of Psalm 119 said, verses 67 and 71. The author of Psalm 119 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Can you look back on some periods of your life where you were running astray and the Lord sent discipline into your life or you reaped consequences for sin? Can you look back and go, yeah, that was good for me. It hurt, but it was good for me. And I got myself in that situation. So here's the application. Receive the Lord's discipline. Don't be like my puppy that was fighting against it and fighting against it and fighting against it. If you've sinned against the Lord, accept your consequences with humility, knowing that good things and great growth will come out of it. The Lord disciplines us so that we'll learn from our sins, so we won't suffer the consequences of that sin again. And if you're in a season of discipline for growth, where you didn't do anything wrong, you were just walking with Jesus, minding your own business, and bam, you just got hit by the, by the anvil from the Lord. He just dropped a truck on you. Well, you can be encouraged as well and rest in the fact that he is getting you ready for something good in your future. Just as grapes have to be squashed to make fine wine, just as cinnamon has to be ground out, to become a tasty spice, and just as a stone has to be hammered to become a sculpture. So we must be squashed, ground, and hammered to be useful to the Lord. Look at uh, verse 8. Jonah then says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He's stating something that he learned while he was in the belly of the whale, reflecting on his rebellion. And so here's number three. Uh, this is the principle, I think. Uh, Jonah is saying, loving idols instead of the Lord will never satisfy us. It's just not worth it. Loving idols instead of the Lord will never satisfy us. This is a fascinating verse that Jonah prays here in verse 8. Because the Hebrew word for regard in the ESV, it's, it can be translated worship in other translations. Um, but Jonah is admitting that he had been worshiping something other than the Lord. Well, what did he worship? Well, he names it. He says, vain idols. You've heard me say before, an idol is anything that we love more than Jesus, that we're willing to sin in order to get. But the word used here in the original language in the Hebrew text in verse 8 for idols, it's a, 
it's a, it's a very interesting word. It, it could literally be read worthless, worthlessnesses of nothingness. <laughs> Try saying that. Worthlessnesses of nothingness. <laughs> That's an idol. It refers to the inability of idols to satisfy the deepest longings of the human soul because they are empty. They are like candy with empty calories. They taste good going down, but there's no nutritional value at all to them. They have no spiritual substance to them. What happens to people who love their sin or their idols more than Jesus? Well, the second half of the verse tells us in verse 8. They forsake their hope of steadfast love. The New English translation, I think, renders this slightly better, so I'll show it to you. Um, The New English translation says they forfeit mercy that could be theirs. You know what a forfeit is? You know, it's when you give up something that you could have had or something you had already. You know, for example, a basketball team that forfeits a game before they've played the game because they don't have enough players. Or, or another example might be, let's say, a football team that has to forfeit games they already had won, but they used an ineligible player, so they have to forfeit the games they already played. Jonah is acknowledging that, that loving his sin more than the Lord caused him to forfeit the favor of the Lord. And therefore, he's saying in verse 8, it wasn't worth it. I learned it wasn't worth it. It was a waste of time. It was emptiness. In Jonah's case, it was his patriotism that overruled his obedience to the Lord. You remember I talked about that last week. He was a staunch patriot. He was for Israel. But his patriotism trumped his obedience to the Lord because he wanted justice for Israel. He wanted the Assyrians to perish. Instead of being obedient to the Lord. And so let me boil this down into a succinct principle for you. When Jesus ceases to be the first love of your life, idols will begin to crawl up on the throne of your heart to demand your worship. When Jesus ceases to be your first love, idols will begin to crawl up on the throne of your heart to demand your worship. That's what happened to Jonah. And that's what he's acknowledging here in verse 8. So the application is to relinquish your sin with genuine repentance. To relinquish your sin with genuine repentance. Instead of forsaking God's love for us, he calls us to forsake our sin. Forfeit your sin. Give that up. So you can have God's love, favor, and mercy. To repent is a key word in the scriptures because it means a lot more than saying you're sorry. To repent means to change your mind about your sin so that you hate it as much as God does. It means to be so sick of your sin that you're ready to be done with it. And you're going to do everything you can with the Lord's help to make changes in your life so that you don't Commit that sin again, or at least there should be a decreasing occurrence of that sin to where it eventually kind of phases out of your life, to where you do it less 
and less and less as you walk with the Lord and you pray and you meditate and memorize scripture and you seek accountability or you read some good books on that particular sin issue. Relinquish your sin with genuine repentance. Repentance is not only necessary to begin a relationship with Jesus, but it's also necessary to maintain one with him. Just like the people of Israel did in the Old Testament, Christ followers will continue to sin. We will have seasons of rebellion. It could be a day. It could be a week. It could be a month. But we can see in the scriptures, and certainly all of us can testify, I know I can, that we have to repent to restore our relationship with the Lord. So relinquish your sin with genuine repentance. Here's the... Final point, number four, and that is genuine repentance produces genuine obedience and worship. So how do you know if somebody has repented? Well, you watch their life and see, are they being obedient now and are they worshiping the Lord? That's how you can tell the difference between someone that's saying, I'm sorry, versus I repent. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. That's where this fourth and final point comes from. But I, Jonah, here's our key verse for the book, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Notice the language of worship here. Thanksgiving, he says. He's making a recommitment to worship the Lord instead of his idols. Notice he says, I vowed, I, what I have vowed, I will pay. So he's backing up his recommitment to worship with saying, I'm going to not only sing in my worship, but I'm going to give to. It's probably because uh, Jonah knew that the Lord knew where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. He then declares salvation belongs to the Lord, demonstrating his humility because he knows he couldn't have saved himself when he was drowning in the ocean. He knows it was God that got him out of that mess. The Lord saved him. So in essence, he says, because you saved me, Lord, from making a mess of my life, I'm ready to do whatever you ask me to do. I'm ready to go wherever you want me to go, and I'm ready to say whatever you want me to say. Application. Well, for verses 9 and 10, recommit your heart to him if you need to do that. If things are fine today with you and the Lord, that's great. Maybe next month they won't be, though. And so Jonah 2 lays out what you should do when a season comes and you've rebelled against the Lord or turned your heart from him and you realize you need to get back. Jonah 2 provides a template to follow. Jonah 2 shows us, if you admit your brokenness, he can repair you. Here's a great quote from Jerry Bridges, uh, the author of The Discipline of Grace. This is one of his most popular quotes. Jerry uh, recently went to be with the Lord. He says in his book, Discipline of Grace, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. So recommit your heart to him. 
The Lord will repair. He'll repair you if you admit that you're broken. Well, next week we're going to be looking at some amazing things that God did in Jonah chapter 3 that I think should motivate us to ask the Lord to do amazing things through us as a church. However, if we want to see the Lord use our church like he did Jonah in chapter 3, then we have to make a habit of doing chapter 2. We have to live a lifestyle of repentance, of knowing when we've wandered and knowing when we need to get back with the Lord. Would you join me as we close in prayer? With heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to encourage you to just take a moment, not rush out of the service. I want to really encourage you to ask yourself and ask the Lord. Is there anything that you need to repent of? Is there anything, do you need to recommit your heart to the Lord? Have you wandered? Do you even know that salvation comes from the Lord? It is possible to go to church, sing the songs, and try to live a moral life and still not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If that is you, I want to encourage you to make today the day of salvation where you admit that you are a sinner that cannot save yourself, where you tell the Lord, I'm sick of my sin, I'm sick of running from you, I'm sick of avoiding you, I'm sick of doing things my own way, Lord, I need you in my life. Lord, please come into my life and take control of my life. I believe Jesus died for my sin, I believe he was resurrected three days later. And I want to trust in him alone for my salvation. In just a minute, we're going to sing one last song about the love of the Lord. And as we sing, I want to give you the opportunity, if you feel compelled, you can come down front here and pray. If you need to recommit your life to the Lord, you can do so. If you need to receive Christ for the first time, you can do so. Father, please would you do surgery on our hearts today and this week. Would you, by your spirit, bring back to our memory what we've heard today so that we can learn from Jonah. Lord, our hearts are, as Spurgeon says, like an ill-tempered horse that needs to be bridled. So, Lord, please help us get our attention so that we can remember what Jonah went through and hopefully not rebel like he did. Help us, Lord, to remember it's not worth it. Uh, our idols and sin are just it's worthlessnesses of nothingness. And Lord, for those that are stuck in sin right now, please 
help them by your grace and by your spirit to get over their pride, to get over their shame, whatever it is that's keeping them, Lord, please. Help them to see and understand your grace and how much you love them. Thank you, Lord, that your love is higher than the mountains that we face. It's stronger than the power of the grave. It's constant in our trials and change. Thank you, Lord, that your love never, ever fails. It never gives up. And it never runs out on us. Thank you, Lord, for that. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.